full details of FDF webinars, including our online convention, visit fdf.org.uk. FDF, passionate about food and drink. Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us uh, on the latest FDF fortnightly issues update webinar. Uh, I'm Dominic Gooby, Head of International Trade at the FDF. Another PAX update from us this week with much happening over the last fortnight, but we'll follow the usual format. Firstly, starting off with an update on COVID-19, uh, with Ian sharing an overview of the latest developments over the last couple of weeks. We'll have updates from Pete and David on developments in Wales and Scotland. Uh, and then Mark Harrison and Sarah Malone will be updating with the latest on the coronavirus job retention scheme and the business support schemes provided by the government. Following that, we'll move on to uh, the latest in EU exit with uh, James providing an update on the last couple of weeks developments towards the end of the transition period. Myself and Luke Hindlaw will update on the latest on trade and customs. And following that, Kate Hallowell will provide uh, some interesting updates on health before we move on to Ian's general observations and answering your questions. If you'd like to get in touch directly, please do feel free to contact Ian Wright by emailing ian.wright at fdf.org.uk. I'll now hand over to Ian to kick things off on COVID-19. Thank you very much, Dominic. I hope you're all well and thriving. But going back uh, to the 27th of October, important to note that the government's policy on lockdowns and on the way in which lockdowns are managed has, become, has been coming under quite a lot of stress over the last few weeks. And on the 27th of October, the newly formed Northern MPs Research Group, for which read really the Red Wall Tory MPs elected last year, forming into a group, have written to the, M to the Prime Minister demanding a clear exit strategy from the tiered lockdown system and an economic recovery plan for those areas of the North which have been most impacted by the tiered system. On the 28th, we had a report from SAGE that the second wave may be more deadly than the first. It's certainly different in the way that it's impacting. And it's also, I think, something that we have to accept. We're going to not really understand until it's over. It's certainly different, though. Uh, and Macron and Merkel both announced national lockdowns. It's very easy to get sucked into the view that Everything that's going on in this country is happening, as it were, in a vacuum. Well, the truth is that all of European major nations are at some form of national lockdown. The way they've dealt with them is different. In some cases, the death toll and the number of people admitted to hospital are different. But the essential point that a second wave has enveloped the whole of uh, Western Europe is certainly one that needs stating. On the 29th of October, of October, Imperial College noted that about 100,000 people are being infected with COVID each day and that the virus is doubling every nine days. Following day, SAGE suggested that the, uh, that the virus was spreading significantly faster than their worst case scenario. Uh, and then on the 31st of October, the Prime Minister announced a second national lockdown starting on uh, uh, in the early hours of Thursday the 5th and ending in the early hours of Wednesday the 2nd of December, or the end of Wednesday the 2nd of December. It's interesting, I think, to note that that's halfway through the two-week period since we last were together, and yet it seems like an age ago that the Prime Minister announced that lockdown. And um, One thing that I would note is that, that probably justifiably, at least from the medical point of view, but you can see that in that first week, after our last webinar in that week leading up to the 31st of October, absolutely clearly the medical and scientific establishment came together in a, in a very well-coordinated campaign to convince the Prime Minister that a second lockdown was absolutely vital. And that campaign worked extremely effectively and extremely quickly. Indeed, it worked very well in terms of the economic uh, response as well, because on the same day, that the Prime Minister announced a second national lockdown, the Chancellor announced that the furlough scheme, which had been due to end that day, would be extended uh, until the end of the second national lockdown. And as we'll see subsequently, the furlough scheme was extended to the end of March. 
on the 1st of November, on the Sunday morning on Andrew Marr and then on Sophie Bridge on Sky, Michael Gove raised the possibility that the second lockdown might last beyond the 2nd of December. Interestingly, since then, the Prime Minister has been at absolute pains to suggest that the lockdown would automatically expire on the 2nd of December and that we would revert to a tiered system. I think that's pretty essential for the Prime Minister's credibility. Although, of course, if the virus continues to ravage the country, other measures may need to be taken. On Monday, the 2nd of November, the Prime Minister introduced the lockdown to Parliament and the Labour Party gave its backing. So any significant rebellion of Tory MPs, and there was a small rebellion of Tory MPs, was never going to make any difference. On Tuesday the 3rd, the government announced the Liverpool mass testing pilot based on uh, the way in which it's been done in Slovakia uh, would kick off. And indeed it has on Friday the 6th. And we've seen the pictures of queues and queues of people being tested in Liverpool uh, over the last week. On Wednesday the 4th, coronavirus measures were approved by the House of Commons with uh, 39 Tory MPs rebelling and some abstaining, including Theresa May, who you may recall asked for the evidence for the numbers on the lockdown, the numbers of infections and the numbers of uh, the potential risk to be published. And you will also remember that there was a, a brief row about the question of how those figures had been compiled uh, and whether they were deliberately, whether they deliberately misled the, the government or whether they inadvertently misled the government. And that's not an issue which has yet been resolved, but it did engage the st statistics watchdog telling the government that it had to do better in the way it presented its numbers. Uh, on the 5th of November, Rishi Sunak announced that the furlough would be extended to the end of March, as I just said, and gave himself room for impacts both from COVID and from uh, Brexit or the EU exit to the UK economy. Sunday the 8th, the government took action to ban non-UK freight drivers and those, uh, Danish freight drivers, particularly those who've been through Denmark in the last fortnight, as the UK began to take action against the potential for those infected by a cross-species infection with mink should be and, and took the decision that even UK drivers would have to self-isolate for 14 days if they'd been to Denmark. Worth pointing out, this is the first time that haulage and freight drivers have been uh, caught by the regulations. Up to now, they've been exempt. For those of you worried about your Danish bacon or Danish uh, fish supplies, it's worth pointing out that most of those arrive in the UK unaccompanied and therefore should not be too badly affected. And then on the 6th of November, uh, two days ago, and people have more to say about this in a minute, Wales emerged from its 17-day lockdown, uh, firebreak lockdown, though it will have to wait to find out if, the, uh, if it has had a major impact on the figures. And then on Monday, the big news that uh, Pfizer and BioNTech have produced a vaccine which has 90% protection, way ahead of the predictions of almost any pharmacologists and uh, researchers, and to the outpour to a national, indeed a global outpouring of potential relief. The Prime Minister put it, you could hear the toot, perhaps he might have thought of a better word for that, you could hear the toot of the uh, cavalry coming over the hill. And indeed, you could probably hear the pounding of the hooves. But there's been much debate since on how vaccine will be delivered in the UK. And we might have more to say about that later. And then I just want to bring your attention to this, Bupa testing. We are currently facilitating testing on behalf of members. If you can't uh, access testing yourself or you want to access commercially available testing, i.e. you have to pay for it, uh, please get in touch with us. We're doing this with Bupa. We can provide PCR antigen tests. We uh, The results are uh, supplied direct. The tests are sent to the employee direct. The results are sent direct to the employee by email. All ordering data is stored securely and the test costs £95 each. If you are interested in that, please do contact covidtesting at fdf.org.uk. And if you need to know more about the way that service is working, please also email that uh, address 
and either Dawn or Danielle will come straight back to you with all the details. I will now pass on to my colleague Pete Robertson to update us on the first of the devolved nations to emerge uh, from its fire break uh, and and to tell us what's been happening in Wales. And if we go back to our last webinar, just just after the, the 28th, the first or the third version of the Economic Resilience Fund was due to go live. Within 48 hours, the system crashed because of the scale of the number of applications. And so Ken Skates, as of last week, has actually confirmed already that they're going to move into an Economic Resilience Fund 4. Uh, with the expressions of interest due by the 27th of November. And obviously that caused a lot of concern because there's a lot of outstanding processes and um, um, applications processed. However, it's just worth bringing your attention to a couple of other things that are still there. One to do with the lockdown business grants, specifically for businesses that have been impacted. And then the business development grants was another form of, of funding where you have different ranges of projects attracting different amounts of funding, but they were very much about projects for the future to invest in the recovery of your business. And this is something more for potential employees of members than actually members themselves. However, Wales government put in place a specific discretionary fund to deal with the low-income workers. But as Ian said, this, the story, the big or the big story in Wales is is about beyond the fire break. And I think it's interesting, and it's quite interesting when we look at the situation in Northern Ireland with the, the lack of guidance at Welsh Government a week before uh, published the guidance on how we were going to exit um, for, for the, the fire break at the start of this week. Effectively, it puts Wales on a footing of a high or a level two area in England and Wales. Travel continues to be allowed for reasonable excuses. However, there's no international travel allowed. And the one sort of sad statistic that came across my desk was uh, Remembrance Sunday coincided with Wales's 2000th death of COVID. In terms of EU readiness, uh, we've been working directly with food policy uh, colleagues and also the Senate committee to put input into the requirements for EU exit readiness and also working with uh, the food and drink sector across a range, range of parties to try and pull together communication and information from members of the sector. However, there's a couple of things that have come up today that are not on the slide. Uh, one is Welsh Government has um, published this end of transition trans, um, action plan and food is very much at the centre of that in terms of securing food supply chains. There are concerns around short straits, around awareness, around business readiness and they look to directly impact and help businesses get through that. But the other more specific one is that just this afternoon, a £40 million apprenticeship incentive scheme was announced between now and the end of February. If you're looking to employ someone under um, 24, there's a £3,000 uh, gift for that. If you re-employ someone who you've lost, it's two and a half, two thousand six hundred. And actually, if you put someone who's less abled on top of that, there's a further 1,500 incentive. So if anyone out there in Wales is looking to employ young people, up to 10 people, any business, any size, that's something I would suggest you take a look at. And with that, I will hand over to my colleague David to go north to the border. Uh, not too much to say from uh, Scotland this week, unlike uh, other parts of the UK. Uh, there hasn't been an all-out lockdown uh, in Scotland. Instead, the Scottish Government has uh, famously five tiers, numbering from zero to four, uh, of uh, different types of lockdown across the country. They were reviewed uh, yesterday. Uh, no local authority area has been reduced in tiers, so made more free. Uh, but in fact, uh, three have been moved up to tier three, where uh, most of the country is, uh, and that's Fife, Perth and Kinross and Angus. Uh, there was some concern that a couple of authorities, Glasgow and Lanarkshire, would be moved to Tier 4, but the Scottish Government did not do that, but are continuing to monitor the situation. So as yet, no restrictions are being lifted uh, in Scotland at all. Uh, and there remains quite a lot of disgruntlement in hospitality about the different... ...being published on HMRC on how to work in more detail. Uh, since this slide was finalised. So I'm going through that at the moment and we'll make something available to members on that. But the link uh, that will be in slides there with the original announcement will contain more detail on this. In terms of the job retention bonus, uh, that is going to be postponed and the job support scheme is also going to be uh, postponed. Um, so my guess would be that if the coronavirus job retention scheme does end in March, uh, but there are still some economic turbulence. The job support scheme may be reintroduced at that point. And again, the job retention bonus, the original plan was to encourage uh, employers to bring employees back off of furlough for uh, a three-month period. So it might be that the job retention bonus is paid uh, in the summer for those who are brought back uh, from furlough 
after the end of March. But again, this is all slightly crystal ball at the moment. And, and the headline here really is that full 80% of wage cost um, covered furlough from government is back and is here until the end of March at the uh, earliest. And uh, with that, I'm passing over to Sarah for other areas of business support. Thanks, Mark. Um, so I'm going to run through a couple of the latest announcements and some of the work that the FDF is doing on business support, sort of including trade credit insurance and the latest updates on government loan schemes. So on trade credit insurance, as I've mentioned in previous webinars, back in September, the trade credit reinsurance scheme was approved with £10 billion government backing, the scheme underwrites risks for insurers to ensure that they do not withdraw trade credit insurance cover provided to suppliers due to uncertainty surrounding COVID-19. The scheme was backdated uh, from the beginning of April and is currently available until the end of the year. Um, however, with this, the current challenges facing businesses because of the pandemic and the end of the transition period, um, the FDF is writing to ministers with backing from other trade associations across the food and drink supply chain, um, urging an extension to the scheme for at least another six months. So this will help uh, support businesses to continue responding to these challenges, including the impacts of the latest restrictions that have been imposed on the hospitality sector. Secondly, on the latest government announcements, uh, last week the Chancellor announced a further deadline extension for applications to government-backed loan schemes, including the uh, Future Fund, until the end of January next year. So this will give businesses two extra months um, to make loan applications. The previous deadline uh, was at the end of this month. Uh, the loan schemes covered include the bounce-back loans, coronavirus business interruption loans, um, the coronavirus large business interruption loans and the future fund. In addition to this extension, um, firms can also now top up existing bounce back loans um, should they need additional finance. So um, essentially the, real, the rules now allow those businesses who have borrowed less than their maximum, so that's uh, the lower of £50,000 or less than 25% of their turnover to top up their existing loan um, and businesses will be able to take up this option from this week um, and can make use of this option just the once. Um, for further information and eligibility, please see our business support guidance document on our website. So that's all from me. I'll pass over to James. So the theme setter for this update on Brexit for the past fortnight started on the 27th of October with an interview in The Guardian with European Council President Charles Michel who stated somewhat kind of obviously, I suppose that the deal now hangs in the balance and the next two weeks will be crucial. 28th of October, we were back to Brussels uh, for the continuing of intensive talks. And these were to last until the 4th of November. And the hallmark of them has been that compared to previous negotiation rounds, there's been little media commentary from both, commentary from, uh, both sides. Um, even with speculation that we may have entered the tunnel or the submarine, uh, with a possible early agreement in early November. Well, as we can see, that hasn't been quite borne out, but it's undeniable that we're now um, kind of very definitely in the business end of these talks. On the 29th of October, we saw the deadline for the UK to respond to the EU and its legal action against the UK for its breach of the withdrawal agreement uh, via the Internal Market Bill. Uh, the deadline came and passed and there was no response from the British government although it is kind of assumed that, um, that the UK government will drop the various clauses from the bill should an agreement be reached. Um, still nothing much really been reported in the press, but then a few tidbits um, began to emerge. So on the 1st of November, there was some information about fishing. Bloomberg reported that a compromise is emerging on this issue of what access EU boats will have to UK fishing waters, and that this could defer, uh, defer crucial decisions but the exact quotas EU boats are allocated until a later date. And this would mean that EU boats won't uh, lose out immediately and any disagreements over how the catch is divided up will be something for the future, basically. So, so the nitty-gritty of the fishing negotiations don't scupper any wider deal right now. So a classic fudge. General direction of the talks were also alluded to on the 4th of uh, November um, with RTE, the Irish broadcaster, reporting that Michel Barnier um, had given a rather downbeat briefing to EU ambassadors. While there had been progress on police and judicial cooperation, there had been no progress on the level playing field, fisheries and governance, despite that 
talk of the fudge uh, just now, uh, with Barnier stating that there had been backsliding also on the UK side on issues such as robust competition, competition authority in the UK, as well as promises made on environment, climate, labour conditions and tax. Uh, the UK was a little bit too relaxed about the timetable to ratify an agreement before the end of the year, which is obviously now pretty tight. This rather contrasted to David Frost tweeting that progress uh, was being made, um, although divergences remain. So a bit more succinct there from it on his behalf. On to the 8th of November um, at the weekend, uh, Bonnier came back over to London to restart the next round um, of intensified talks. And Dominic Raab was interviewed on the Andrew Marsh show saying that that without doubt, the UK would be better placed with a deal, uh, but could survive without one, uh, but very much kind of put the onus on the EU to adjust its negotiating positions on the various difficult issues which we all know about. On the 9th of uh, November, uh, started this week, the House of Lords rejected the various clauses in the international, sorry, in the internal markets bill that had seen ministers admit uh, they will be breaking international law. And, and this is one of the biggest defeats in the Lords faced by any government since hereditary peers were um, ejected uh, some 20 years ago. Downing Street uh, has been insisting that they, they will put the clauses back in, although there is that, um, as I said before, the thought that um, they could be quietly dropped if the deal is reached. And it was also reported that Downing Street was making clear that the election of Joe Biden didn't change their calculations with regard to their negotiating hand. Um, also on the same day, the FDF uh, published its uh, latest quarterly business confidence report, uh, this showed that businesses remain concerned about not knowing where they will be come the end of the Brexit transition, deal or no deal. And it's especially true with regard to what may happen on the Northern Ireland border and how this indeed may affect supply. Despite this, the general political and media me uh, mood, mood music seems to be rather positive. Um, and just today, the Irish, Prime Minister, Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney came out and said that he thinks that next Wednesday might be the day for a possible deal to be announced. He thinks the omens are good. He doesn't, he doesn't preclude the possibility that talks will fail, but he, he's uh, optimistic. Uh, with EU sources also being reported that they will present a deal to the UK side and or we take it or leave it. So we're still looking, this will be familiar to a lot of people, we're still looking for, well, maybe a, pos a possible deal next, um, next Wednesday, which could be mid-November. And then it really is down to when and how quickly it can be ratified. There's been talk of a possible EU Council on the 10th of December uh, for um, EU ministers to nod it through, uh, and then maybe an extraordinary plenary session of the European Parliament after the 16th of December. These are some of the so-called creative solutions which the European side has, has been um, talking about with the EU um, European Parliament to approve a deal uh, by, the by these deadlines. Anyway, with that, I will hand over to Dominic. So in the last couple of weeks, we've had uh, the news that I think many of us never thought we would see in that we've received answers to the very long list of unanswered questions that we've been repeatedly asking DEFRA over the last 12 or 18 months or so. Uh, during the last week, we've received three batches of answers now from DEFRA covering 125 of the 171 questions. Uh, and colleagues from right across FDF have been working through all of these answers uh, to check a lot of the references to regulations and to detail parts of the border operating model so we can indicate back to DEFRA whether we're satisfied the questions are adequately answered or to indicate where we need further information or, or where the question just has not been answered. I think it's the case that the vast majority of the outstanding questions sit with HMRC uh, and DEFRA is badgering them to feed into those answers as soon as possible. Uh, we have made the full list available on both our public and members EU exit web pages, uh, and a further update should be uploaded within the next 24 hours, including the second and third tranches of answers. Uh, and we will continue to update that document, uh, document regularly. Uh, uh, and one request we have for members is please do let us know if you're not satisfied with any of the answers that we've marked as green. Uh, where you think further information is required, and we will happily chase DEFRA to provide further information. I thought I'd just share a, a brief update on the world of trade agreement continuity and the efforts uh, of the Department for International Trade to roll over the mass of existing EU trade agreements uh, from the 1st of January. 
We've seen in the last week or so progress being made with deals signed with both Kenya and the Ivory Coast. Um, the full text of the Ukraine agreement has now been published as well. Uh, indications are that a lot of the concluded deals are at varying degrees of progress in terms of ratification, and DIT is doing a lot of work to make sure that they can apply from the 1st of January. Uh, in some cases, ratification isn't needed and they will be able to apply them in any case, whereas in others, they are looking to put in place bridging arrangements to make sure that there is no break in market access or, or need for businesses to revert to trading on WTO terms. In the table uh, at the bottom of the screen, I've outlined what is our latest understanding of the state of play in the key outstanding agreements. Uh, and we note that particularly Canada, but also Vietnam, seem to be progressing very well towards conclusion in the very near future. Uh, we understand that in the case of Canada, there's uh, some final haggling taking place over dairy quotas uh, provided by uh, Canada for UK exporters that needs to be resolved, but it's hoped that those deals will be signed off very quickly. Uh, in the case of Norway and Iceland, uh, we understand that talks are uh, progressing quite well, but uh, the challenge of their linkage to the EU negotiations means it's unlikely the deals will be signed uh, in time for the end of this year to apply at the beginning of next year. So instead, the government is looking at the temporary no-deal agreement that was put in place with both countries uh, in the hope that they can have uh, bridging arrangements for both of those markets. Moving on to the fun world of rules of origin, uh, an area that uh, is very close to my heart. We are working uh, closely with DEFRA at the moment uh, on developing business-friendly guidance on rules of origin in the EU trade agreement. Obviously, there are some challenges in that, in, uh, not least because the deal has not been agreed yet, but we're helping them to create a format of guidance that will provide sufficient clarity for businesses to fully understand the consequences at the end of the transition period of whatever is agreed in the trade deal uh, as and when we hope it is put in place. Uh, I believe uh, my colleague Luke has reached out to a handful of member companies that have supported us on the rules of origin work over recent months, uh, and they are helping to inform exactly what businesses need to know on rules of origin. Uh, and we are going to be feeding that back to DEFRA before the end of the week uh, and hope that uh, some really useful guidance will be available at the very earliest opportunity to allow businesses uh, a sufficient time to be prepared. I'll now pass over to Luke for some updates on the customer side. Uh, yeah, I'll just do some updates on the Northern Ireland issues and the GBEU border operating model. So on Northern Ireland, um, we are continuing to see with DEFRA press ahead with the trusted trader scheme for, uh, at the moment, um, retailers moving GB to NI, which effectively the scheme will allow um, retailers to use all the information they have within their um, databases and supply chains to be able to um, help waive or reduce the amount of paperwork. Uh, there's quite a bit of that's still unclear about the system around um, how what you need to be doing when you arrive in Northern Ireland or how you stop it entering and going down south to the Republic of Ireland. But FDF has been engaging with um, DEF on this to make the case that it needs to be extended to suppliers, so FDF members. Um, and we attended a meeting last week to make that case, which we feel the message landed pretty well, and we'll be looking to set something up with DEFRA to continue to make that case on that. But it's fair to say, I think we're throwing the kitchen sink at it to get suppliers involved. Um, and this scheme is very much of the topic of what we saw with the joint letter from Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill, the First Minister and Deputy First Minister of the Northern Ireland um, Assembly, and, you know, the response seems to be that the EU is really digging its heels on the SPS issues. Um, and I think my, Michelle Barnier has even been quoted as saying that a priority for the EU is to avoid a food incident there. And you can see that's why they're digging the heels. But we understand that they will be responding to the joint letter uh, shortly. So on the border operating model, we finally have a response or possible solution to the long-standing issue that we've been raising for years around what, how do you... Um, re-export products of animal origin that has been imported from the EU under the first few stages of the border operating model. So it comes into the e, uh, GB without an export health certificate, and then you need to um, re-export it, uh, and the vet will effectively say, no, we have no idea where that product's come from. Um, the guidance effectively says that 
in that initial phase, so January to April, you will need to get your supplier to complete and get a vet to sign a draft or mock um, export health certificate for the EU to GB leg uh, in order to be able to show that to the UK vet when you're looking to re-export that. If anyone is interested, we have the lines uh, that DEFRA have shared and we are made, trying to get DEFRA to make that public. Um, then we've also, in our recent engagement with DEFRA, had an update around the process of what happens to exported goods to the EU if they fail entry at the EU port. Um, so what effectively will happen is once that lorry gets turned away or refused entry, that lorry will have to go back to the EU. But as that lorry has left EU, the UK customs control to re-enter the UK as the risk profile of that lorry will have changed, you have to redo the customs and SPS certification if it has any to re-enter the UK and then possibly goes via a BCP uh, on re-entry. Uh, we've made the case that given that the government has said the reasonable worst case scenario is 50% of lorries heading to the border not being ready, that does leave the potential for absolute carnage where you have to have a, a customs declaration and SPS documents to re-enter the country when they couldn't do it to get out of the country. Um, so we're raising that with DEF as well. Um, the government via the Border Protocol Delivery Group is continuing to do their EU industry days. We understand the next one is tomorrow, which will be for French suppliers. So if you have an interest in that, drop me a line. My email is just at the bottom of that, and we'll try and get you the link for that. And on the Northern Ireland, uh, back to Northern Ireland, I should say, actually on the Northern Ireland Protocol, we've seen some updates around the border control posts that need to be in place. Um, and this was in our last trade update last week where... They have essentially mapped out where the border control boats would be at Larne, Warren Point and Belfast Harbour, where there will essentially be, I think, nine lorry docking facilities at each one um, to check the SPS goods. Uh, now, I think it's very fair to say that this is very much late in the day for this to be doing, and it's very unlikely that this will be ready to be implemented on day one, so that's 1st of January. And we understand DEFRA or DERA um, are... Uh, looking to, they should be publishing shortly their plans around how they will essentially undertake these checks in absence of the readiness of these border control posts where the, the permanent secretary of DARA effectively mentioned that they should be doing this to one of the select committees over there uh, where they will essentially have a plan and it will probably be a reduced ins inspection where it will be about one or two lorries uh, per ferry and it will probably, and it, it could see checks on the GB side. Um, and it, you know, this is clearly um, going to be implemented. Uh, the checks and inspections on the Northern Ireland side on a, on a scale from the first of Jan to as you further get down the road. So, you know, it will be a kind of a moving goalpost you'll have to be heading towards on the Northern Ireland um, issue when you're sending goods GB to NI. Uh, and this is, of course, this is going to change the economics of which route you choose to go into the Northern Ireland as. Uh, it looks like it's going to be a much easier process to go GB to NI direct rather than going, you know, say Holyhead to Dublin and then up to Northern Ireland as you'd face the full extent of EU checks. Uh, we've also had some guidance on VAT for moving goods from GB to NI and vice versa, um, which effectively says that there shouldn't be too much change to the way you account for VAT UK-wide. Uh, the only thing to watch out is as we get further down the road into next year and if the GB starts to diverge from EU and VAT purposes, that's where we'll start to see divergence when you're supplying um, GB to NI. And that's going to be a running theme, I think, from the protocol. As the GB diverges further from the EU, you'll start to see more issues become apparent as if we didn't already have it enough. Um, and we've also seen some updated guidance around EORI numbers. So if you're supplying GB to NI and you're looking to do the customs declaration um, on that journey, you will need an XI EORI number. That's the EORI number for Northern Ireland now. So, and the way HMRC are going to look to undertake this process is going to be um, anyone with a G, you need a GB EORI, EORI number to apply for that XI. And HMRC will automatically um, apply for traders they believe need one that are moving goods GB to NI. Um, and then lastly, on the Northern Ireland, um, we understand that DEFRA are looking to implement what is called a movement assistance scheme. That's separate to the um, retail um, movement scheme, which is effectively the trusted trader. But the movement assistance scheme will help support traders with the novel cost of signing an EHC and little else. So it won't help with the extra resource you need to do to undertake the export health certificate or the, or the BCP costs to get that, that export health certificate checked on arrival. 
Uh, I mean, it's fair to say that we that our initial take on this has been that it's not enough. Uh, the retail movement scheme is a far more uh, expansive and helpful scheme that has been applied to retailers that needs to be expanded. And this, I don't think, would cut it. And then lastly, on the FDF trade updates, just a reminder, we do our weekly digest of um, our meetings and key updates that go out every Thursday or Friday. It's a members-only document, but um, if there's any non-stakeholders, drop us a line. Dominic always have to chat about the latest update. And then lastly, we are, um, from next week, looking to do some weekly drop-ins for members um, via Teams, which will essentially be an Ask Me Anything between Dominic and I on key updates on trade and customs, just kind of a, a very informal way for members to be able to quickly have a meeting or chat with us about any questions they um, have for us uh, every Friday, but we'll put the details on that in our trade updates. Uh, so that is the extent of my update, Ian, and I'll now pass over to Kate. So I'm just going to mainly be updating on the consultation that uh, came out uh, on a ban on online advertising. Um, so this is just a reminder of the key dates of what things we have coming up on this policy area. Um, and I think to highlight that because the online consultation has now launched, that has a knock-on effect to when we expect to see the results of the rest of the advertising consultation to come through. So we were expecting something by the end of the year, but actually government will wait for um, the consultation responses in to online and then assess it all together. So things like the nine o'clock watershed consultation, uh, which happened in 2019, which we were expecting this year, is now going to be probably quarter one, 21, possibly into quarter two. We are still expecting that the promotions consultation results and next steps will be coming either the end of this year or the very start of next year. Um, and the other thing to draw your attention to around infant food work, um, PHE indicated this week that the uh, work on reformulation for infant foods, they are looking to progress that this year. Um, so there will be some um, draft work that they'll be publishing before the end of the year. But the marketing and labelling side, which is led by DHSC, it's most likely now that that will be into 2021, although we've not had formal confirmation of that. So looking at the consultation that was launched, it's a very short, it's only a six-week consultation. Um, so it will end on the 22nd of December. The scope uh, is, is outlined there, and I'll come on to talk a little bit more about what that includes, but it's, of course, very broad. One thing to note on this is that DHSC are not consulting uh, on the products which will be caught by um, this proposed ban. So they basically have said that they consulted on the products in scope under the 2019 consultation. And so we have to work with the assumption uh, of their preferred model under that consultation because they have not published the response to that. Um, and so they, they haven't actually confirmed which products are in scope. But what is likely to be in scope is any product that's defined as HFSS using the Ofcom Nutrient Profile Model 2004-2005, cross-referenced to the Public Health England categories that have sugars or calorie reformulation targets. It's uh, quite complicated and it's quite a lot. So uh, happy for people to come to me separately if um, they're not quite clear if their products would be in scope of this or not. So the exclusions in a way are easier to name check than what's in. Uh, so business to business marketing communications, uh, factual claims about a product or communications around a sale. So a retailer website, for example, uh, with price on product uh, would be excluded. The um, proposed liability lies with the advertiser, so the company. And currently, they're looking at this regulation being the, the regulator being through the ASA, um, although there would be a statutory backstop. So this will involve primary legislation um, and they have not yet determined what that statutory backstop or who that would be. This is all still rolling towards both TV and online restrictions being introduced in 2022. As I said, it is very broad. And I think some things you would expect if someone was talking about an advertising ban online, uh, so around paid for advertising, viral advertising, advert games, all different types. I think probably the thing to really note here, though, is that uh, companies' own websites are currently in scope for this. 
Um, so marketing within your own website. Uh, there is a, a small definition uh, in the consultation around the types of information that they would expect people to still be able to provide on a website. Uh, it's a pretty dry read, if I'm honest. So it's product name, things like nutrition information, ingredients information, allergen declarations, those types of things. So obviously that is a big concern. Also something I think we probably need to try and seek more clarity on in terms of exactly what kinds of information um, government is thinking would fall into a definition of marketing activity on an owned website. I think the other thing to say, I should have uh, probably mentioned on the last slide, is thinking about the scope of all of this. Um, although this is still uh, being badged as to tackle childhood obesity, it is very clearly a proposal to ban across the board. So there, this is not related to age gating. This is a, a total ban for all audiences of these advertising of these product types. So it's really quite a big um, a big move, a big step from where we have previously been when we've spoken about advertising policy, which has always been around the context of um, to a child. And we will be talking uh, very closely or working very closely with other industry bodies on this. So particularly the advertisers and so the Advertising Association, as well as with the retailers. Thank you very much, Kate. And thank you to everyone. And just a couple of observations from me first before we take questions. I know Dominic will have a few questions. The first is um, on that last point about the uh, the obesity consultation, the, the, the online consultation. This was raised this after, this morning with uh, George Eustace, not actually by me at the F4 meeting. And a degree of incredulity was expressed by all parties. I couldn't possibly say whether that included the minister, that anybody would think that you could do a consultation of this sort in the middle of a COVID crisis while business was locked down and while we were about to see the most significant challenges of Brexit. And we have asked the minister to intercede with DHSC to extend the consultation period uh, or find other mechanisms for ensuring that business isn't swamped by this. There are a number of other consultations going on as well, of course, and the minister agreed to make those representations. A couple of other observations on the Irish question. I don't know if you will have noticed that our survey uh, of members who operate in Ireland showed that a third of members have already decided, who operate in Ireland, have already decided not to operate in the first few weeks or first months of the operation of the Northern Ireland Protocol because they're very unsure about the conditions. This is an issue which has already got traction. It's closely linked to the, le the reasons that um, the First and Deputy First Ministers, in a remarkable show of unity, uh, wrote to Barnier on this subject. And as Luke was saying, we're also very active on the whole issue. We are literally, as he put it, throwing the kitchen sink at the, uh, at the question of uh, the retailer movement scheme to try and ensure that members are also included in it. Uh, I was speaking yesterday to the leader of the organisation Northern Ireland Retail, which represents the convenience stores, wholesale and, wholesalers and others, who is also extraordinarily exercised by this. And uh, although I'm not sure it will be him or his organisation, I'm absolutely certain that if the RMS uh, exists in its current form, it will be challenged both with the Competition and Markets Authority and probably through the Northern Ireland High Court. Whether that will stop it operating or force its extension, I know not. But there is certainly going to be a fairly significant challenge and it's extremely controversial in Northern Ireland already. And I think I'll pause there, Dominic, and take any questions that anybody may have. The first one comes from Adam Salisbury, who asks, if we are an SME with approximately 30 people in production and only five people allowed in canteen at any one time, are we legally obliged to have a QR code to scan when people go into the canteen? Well, I think the answer to that is that the QR codes have been suspended for the period of the national lockdown because it is assumed that members of the public cannot go into those uh, canteens because they are locked down. I will check that. I don't think we've anybody from the COVID-19 team on the call at the moment, but my, I'm pretty sure that that is the answer to the question. If it isn't, we will correct it with 
on our website, but I think you can make that assumption. Uh, a second question, I think this is one for Mark Harrison. Are there terms with the rehire of redundancies and being able to furlough them? It seems that, that you have to meet the first, the, the general eligibility requirement, which is that this uh, individual has been on your payroll at some point between uh, the 20th of March and end of October. Um, and if you have made them redundant on the, I think it was the 23rd of September or later, uh, then you are able to rehire them. You, if yeah, you're able to rehire them and put them on furlough. So yeah, employees on payroll on the 23rd, you can then rehire them and then furlough them. If you've made someone redundant uh, before that time, it would appear they are not eligible uh, for the new furlough scheme. But as I said, um, final details have been uh, uploaded uh, and we'll be reviewing them soon. But in terms of the the uh, um, information that was released just before the slides were finalised for this uh, webinar, that, that was the information that had been released. So employees uh, made redundant uh, after the 23rd of September um, should be eligible for rehire and furlough. Third question on health marks, uh, asking uh, Mrs Paul Howe, have DEFRA confirmed if a GB health mark can be applied prior to 31st of December, provided the product is not put on the market until 1st of January, to ensure no gaps in the supply chain in early January? I can't answer that for sure. I don't know if Luke or Dominic can. They published something or are intending to publish something that uh, says something to effect of that you can place the health mark as long as you don't place it on the market, but it's not clear what placing it on the market is or isn't at the moment. And we, I think we heard that this morning as well in the um, update that some of us got on the Trade Association Roundtable. There is still confusion about what the words are place on the market and the concept of what the words place means in the context of what is on the market. So uh, it's not clear that whether you're the, if you're the other side of the relevant channel, either is it St George's that runs across to Ireland? I can't remember. Or the other side of the Irish Sea or over the uh, Straits of Dover. It's not clear whether that actually does mean on the market. In Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland case, we have this extremely concerning but undoubtedly well-meant concept of uh, pragmatic um, enforcement, which is the government's way of saying uh, we're going to be as indulgent as we can with those who could not possibly have uh, complied with rules that we've only just made up. Um, but for those who have compliance codes, as I've said, interminably on this call and on others, uh, and those who have to observe, who have a very strict way of observing the rules, that is not good enough. And we have a promise from DEFRA that there will be two different events. One is that uh, Victoria Prentice, the Minister of State, will host, who is herself crucially a barrister and therefore an officer of the court, will host a meeting of general counsel and compliance officers of our members to discuss the practical difficulties of pragmatic pragmatic. Uh, enforcement. And I understand from the Secretary of State that the Attorney General is being consulted on the way in which he can offer, come, or sorry, she can offer comfort. I had Jeffrey Cox in my mind, and it's actually Braverman, isn't it? Apologies to both of them. Um, uh, in the way in which they can, she can offer uh, comfort on the on that issue. So we wait for both of those. Uh, we've got another question just come in on the food business operator addresses uh, from Bruce Alexander asking, uh, my understanding is that if we export to the EU, all packaging must include an EU address. As an SME, we do not have an EU office. So are there agencies that manage this scenario and can represent SMEs? Uh, Luke, where do we, do you, I, I don't know if we ever resolved that question. Did we last time around? Uh, I don't believe we did. I think the official line is that you would need a legal entity of that company in the EU. But I think that's one we'd best take away, give to Alex Turtle to provide a response. Yeah, and I think I know that in the previous two rounds of uh, Brexit discussions, we were uh, under some pressure and a request came to us about whether we could establish an office that would comply with those rules and we were saved by the bell as it were when that didn't need to happen because of the uh because both of the the, the eu exits last all three of them got aborted um i think we will take that question away again and see if, if there is a way that we can find some mechanism by which 
for SMEs, we can provide some kind of cover. In Northern Ireland, again, this will be this will again be the subject of the of the aforementioned pragmatic uh, enforcement. And again, it's not entirely clear how that helps. But we'll come back to you on that question. Final question uh, on internet advertising for Kate from Ian Mace. Uh, asking whether this would include recipes on company websites. Um, I think that would fall into the area of unclear. Um, so the list that they gave of information that they considered could still be provided was quite a short list. It certainly isn't all-encompassing. Everything on that was very factual and directly related to the product makeup. Um, so I think that would be one of the areas that you would have to define whether that was perceived as as marketing and advertising um so unclear i'm afraid dominic yes i have a question as well so if if you if that was all the questions i have one for you uh yes i think we've got a few comments coming in but we'll i think we're running over time so we'll have to pick these up separately my question for you is something i heard just literally as i was coming onto this call from somebody i gather gove has said something in the context of northern ireland i think but potentially more widely about a um, a rules of origin holiday. Is that something about which you've heard? Uh, no, uh, it's one of the questions that we've got on our list of 171 that I think has not been adequately answered at this time. Uh, but I've not seen Gove's comments and I haven't seen any other coverage of that. So it's one I'll have to look into. And uh, if there's any substance to that, I'm, I'll be happy to update on the next call of this group. Uh, and provide an update through the trade uh, weekly circular that we outlined. I think I think it must be a news story, and I I, I uh, somebody's just sent me an email about, but uh, that's helpful. I want to say thank you to, again to our wonderful contributors from FDF. If you, ever you wondered what it was we did all day, you should have been fairly well assured that we're all pretty well gainfully employed here uh, and in our various locations at the moment. We're constantly looking at the question of whether we need to bring these webinars to you on a weekly basis. I suspect we will need to increase their frequency as we get into December, uh, particularly if the lockdown continues. Um, and we will certainly be back to you in two weeks' time with all the details that we can find. But thanks for your help with this. If you'd like to keep in touch with uh, our podcasts, uh, Ian produces uh, a podcast every week where we don't have a webinar, and you can subscribe to that using every major podcast platform and app going, and you can also listen to it through the Amazon Alexa. Uh, finally, the next uh, webinar is scheduled to take place on Tuesday, the 24th of November at 2.30 and we look forward to meeting you then. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow, and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.